Hello and welcome to Retrieving the Social Sciences, a production of the Center for Social Science Scholarship. I'm your host, Ian Anson, Associate Professor of Political Science here at UMBC. On today's show, as always, we'll be hearing from UMBC faculty, students, visiting speakers, and community partners about the social science research they've been performing in recent times. Qualitative, quantitative, applied, empirical, normative, on Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. Perhaps one of the most culturally significant questions that we can ask each other in conversation is a rather banal one. Hey, where are you from? For me, as a person who's lived in two countries and four different states during my lifetime, it's possible to answer this question in a few different ways. Where was I born? Where did I spend the most years of my life? Or maybe the years when I was learning the most about who I was? Where do I call home? And for some folks, the answer to this question can also be a painful or even an uncomfortable one. We might answer the question by naming a place where we experienced hardship or discrimination or trauma. We might end up naming a place we wistfully long to return to one day. Or we might name the place that we are right now, a place we long to one day leave behind us. What I'm driving at is, place is a complex and a deeply personal subject. The significance of place is perhaps nowhere more salient than in the discussion that we're bringing you in today's episode. In just a moment, we'll hear a condensed rebroadcast of a recent lecture that formed part of the UMBC Geography and Environmental Systems Seminar Series. The subject of the talk is the Texas Freedom Colonies Project, the fascinating and renowned work of Dr. Andrea Roberts of the University of Virginia. Dr. Roberts uses the project as a springboard to mentor and train future planners, preservationists, scholars, and community-based researchers in order to address the biggest challenges facing settlements in Texas and around the country. According to the Texas Freedom Colonies Project, these challenges include invisibility, environmental injustice, land loss, heritage conservation, and endangered historic structures and cemeteries. This is a fascinating interdisciplinary project that requires interdisciplinary expertise, which Dr. Roberts possesses in surplus. Dr. Roberts serves as Associate Professor of Urban and Environmental Planning and Co-Director of the School Center for Cultural Landscapes at the UVA School of Architecture. Holding a PhD from the University of Texas, she's a scholar-activist who brings 12 years of experience in community development, nonprofit administration, and advocacy to her engaged research and public scholarship, which raises awareness of the entrenched racial biases impeding documentation, recognition, and preservation of historic Black settlements' cultural assets. Let's dive in and take a listen to what Dr. Roberts has to say about the Texas Freedom Colonies Project right now. So uh, thanks so much for having me, and I'm excited to speak to such a, a group that's uh, very interdisciplinary because that very much categorizes uh, the research that I do. Um, I'm going to speak today about co-creating counter-narratives as a foundation for just planning and preservation. So why narratives? And to kind of talk about uh, why I center narratives in my work. Um, it's helpful, I think, to uh, read this quote by Toni Morrison. Uh, she says, if my work is to confront 
a reality unlike that received reality of the West, it must centralize and animate information discredited by the West, information dismissed as lore or gossip or magic or sentiment. And uh, I would add, uh, I will have to add information that's embedded in narratives, stories, oral tradition. So to give further context to my work, uh, I've worked professionally in urban planning and government administration. And a lot of my study is, while focused in African-American settlements, is more broadly um, a study of anti-Blackness, of sort of structural racism in uh, public history and historic preservation. So when we look, about, look at narratives and why they're so pertinent to understanding anti-Blackness, we would be remiss if we didn't recognize that in the last six years, we've had some notable uh, moments, historic, shared historical moments in public history work and um, history happening in public uh, and historic preservation. We have Charlottesville in 2017, 1619 Project in 2019, uh, the murder of George Floyd in 2020, which all led to a heightened awareness of systemic racism and anti-Blackness more specifically about when we talk about public space and public history. Um, it's also important to examine the lack of recognition um, of historic spaces associated with people of color. Only 3% of the 96,000 properties on the National Register of Historic Places represent African-American heritage. And they're very um, in proportion to uh, predominantly white uh, historic local historic districts, uh, much fewer African-American uh, than Anglo. Less than 6% of the National Park Service's 20,000 employees are African-American. African-Americans are less than 4% of academic archaeologists, 5% of licensed architects and engineers. And there's barriers to African-American participation, a lack of compensation and validation of African-Americans' work. Uh, and what they bring to the table. Uh, there's a lot of change that needs to happen in participatory planning and preservation that needs to validate the time and the local narratives and the value of what uh, non-experts bring to the table. Uh, and neighborhood change makes organizing around particular places often a challenge and difficult. So we have these kind of structural reasons for a lack of visibility in the field, in the practice, um, in the process, and in the landscape. And oral tradition, when I use the word narrative, I also want to make sure I'm clear on what I mean. Um, I'm speaking more broadly about oral tradition, which comes in a number of forms, storytelling, testimony, group accounts, oral history, songs, reminiscence, and memory. And under that, we have personal memory, cognitive memory, and habit memory, which is very much embodied. Uh, and narrative forms also have a number of functions um, in communities and in our everyday life. There are catalysts for particular actions. They often give us a proof of the resilience of community. Uh, they offer us theories of change. Why were we here and how did we get here? Uh, there are our practice stories. Our faci they facilitate collaboration, create transparency. And the particular focus of my work has been on foundational stories, those stories that tell communities who they are in the process by which they were created and came about. But when we talk more structurally 
uh, about what narratives do in their sphere of influence in, let's say, historic preservation and even any uh, land use planning processes. We have status narratives that shape na national identity of public history. We have narratives embedded in our public discourse um, that inform allocations of funding, policymaking, and advocacy. We have all manner of educational and recognition uh, statements and documentation that uh, help define areas, uh, con historic context statements, for example. National Register designations are actually uh, large, uh, well-researched documents that are embedded with a narrative of why a particular place, site, object, building, or set of structures in a landscape means something. We have ordinances, leadership, organizational cultures, insider, outsider status determined um, or largely constructed through narrative and story. We also have dominant planning narratives to be more specific that uh, are common uh, in how we shape or thinking, think about black communities. So this particular diagram, the source of the information for this diagram is my own um, experience teaching for several, or not teaching, but rather actually working in cities, working for the city of Houston, the city and county of Philadelphia, and some of these tropes or ideas um, that uh, are dominant planning narratives um, exercised in Black communities, always seeking a one-size-fits-all solution, um, a sense that the aesthetics uh, in an African-American community are those of um, needing repair or change, um, but not necessarily being aesthetics we associate with the, the historic. Um, people have very complicated ideas about the historic that don't represent uh, the law or uh, the regulatory complex that tells us what's historic and what's not. Uh, inner cities, that's commonly how we think about African-American places. Um, not that it's inaccurate. I know a lot of you are in Baltimore, so this is very accurate, accurate to a certain extent, but it doesn't cover the full breadth and width of the shape of Black communities. Uh, memorialization, that these are places that have a glory in the past that we can remember, but they don't have a future rooted in that past. We're doing something different now is often the posture of planning. And blocks and corridors is the shape of life rather than the complex landscapes. And then sort of a token or gatekeeper sense of engagement of finding someone that's easy and safe to relate with when engaging in participatory planning. These are all things that I have encountered um, that shaped uh, some of my study of uh, trying to seek the appropriate world, uh, uh, rather the appropriate role of practitioners uh, in Black spaces in my work. So I mentioned the National Register uh, criteria. The National Historic Preservation Act originally passed in 1966, but amended several times since that time, has two basic criteria. Uh, dimensions that help us understand what matters in the landscape and what doesn't, what's worthy of national recognition and what's not. It's the age and integrity of the structure or the building uh, primarily or object or site. That is, is it 50 years or older and does it still look much the way it did in the past? 
and then there's significance. So we're using the word significance to mean historic significant significance. And this is the four core criteria is the property associated with events, activities, or developments that were important in the past, um, with the lives of people who were important in the past, with significant architectural history or engineering achievements, and doesn't have the potential to yield information through archaeological investigation about our past. So you might look at these and say, well, what's black and white or Latinx or, or, or why, why is this at all embedded with any uh, so-called structural racism? Well, in many instances, there's various reasons for why the structural integrity itself is compromised in African-American communities. And there's several reasons for why the stories and the histories and the evidence of that historic significance is difficult to identify, document, and aggregate in one space to facilitate the access of um, not only the residents themselves, but for practitioners to access to be able to argue significance. So we have um, an argument here for why counter narratives matter. We've seen over the past six years how some of these narratives have fostered life and death moments, how narratives reveal or hide injustice and erase or illuminate inequity. Counter narratives from the margins, however, uh, reveal new publics, disparities, needs, and new policy ideas, as I will argue going forward. And counter narratives, I also argue, should be harnessed, translated to the policy space, and treated uh, as data. And it is important to prioritize counter narrative integration into government consultation and discourse by leveraging technology and grassroots communication pathways. So again, about black spaces and planning, just to give you an idea of what type of settlements or places I'm talking about, in our popular imagination, some of you are probably already aware of historic black towns such as Rosewood, Florida, or Seneca Village, which is now the site of Central Park in New York City, or Eatonville, uh, which we've heard a lot about in the news lately, Nicodemus, Kansas, and Unionville uh, right there in Maryland. The Texas Freedom Colonies encompassed Freedmen's town settlements. Uh, they were dispersed communities, places unplatted, unincorporated, individually unified by church and school and residents' collective belief that a community existed. And it's that collective belief that a community existed that makes it so difficult often to verify whether or not a given landscape um, or place is actually a freedom colony. They're mostly, but not primarily rural, due to the growth of Texas, which now has 24 million residents. Uh, some of the formerly rural spaces are now completely urbanized. Um, but in 1870, less than 2% of African-Americans, or African-Americans owned less than 2% of all farmland in Texas, and by 1900 had amassed 31% of all farmland in Texas. That number is significantly lower now, but it gives us an idea of uh, how African-Americans were able to come together in safe clusters to develop these places, but often all we see left are churches, schools, homesteads, and cemeteries. Why the decline? Why do we not see if there were 557 at least named places um, at any given time that were founded 1865 to 1930? Why don't we see them all now on the map? Uh, population decline. Um, mass exodus um, in several waves associated with uh, escaping racial violence. Um, the Great Migration in many ways was a 
fight to areas in which African-Americans could more freely exercise the franchise. Uh, land dispossession, uh, infrastructure projects, bifurcating, destroying communities, um, and various forms of displacement. And the list goes on. Uh, so the current threats to those that remain would be best characterized as vulnerability, whether it be um, uh, vulnerability due to gentrification or environmental vulnerabilities. Uh, many of these settlements were founded in particularly low-lying areas because that was where the land was mostly available. Uh, the visibility of these places, they were invisible um, in the beginning to facilitate safety and security, but that visibility is uh, clawed away at, if you will, uh, by increasing growth and expansion and sprawl and access, whether it be descendants, access to historic preservation resources or historic preservation, preservation as access to tools and information to properly uh, protect um, places from demolition, sprawl, uh, disaster. So this is a, a tall order then uh, for narratives to say that narratives could do anything to um, protect, grow, um, secure, or have us understand the power of historic Black places. Um, but I saw narratives in action um, and it began in 2011, 2012, when I worked on a project called the Austin Historical Wiki, Survey Wiki, where we were attempting, um, I as a student was attempting to document um, Black um, places uh, that were already determined to be landmarks. And this is at a time when there was increasing demolition of historic uh, places in Black and in Austin. And what we found in our research is that more and more communities of color expressed interest in a mechanism for telling stories about lost places and less interested in what our enterprise was, which is really documenting the architectural elements to prove up that these places mattered. So we were doing something very important. We wanted an easy, cheap way for people to document historic significance and integrity. Um, meanwhile, people wanted a mechanism for telling people about what was lost and talking about more locally grounded constructions of significance. They wanted that documented as well. In terms of invisibility, um, I also found that, you know, often the narratives or what I encountered as a professional and in our ways of talking about vulnerability was to simply get U.S. Census data of African-Americans and overlay them with uh, whether it be water quality issues or incidents of disasters or heat island effect or whatever it is. But if we look here, the green points um, are freedom colonies, and they're not always on top of the yellow areas. The yellow areas are communities of color, majority of communities of color. So what that tells us is that freedom colonies, because of the low population and uh, their placement in the landscape, very often are dealing with water quality and access issues, but because they're not, uh, they don't have the highest concentration of Black uh, residents, you're not seeing the disparity affecting all of these landscapes as well. And there's the issue of being able to recover after disaster. That means being able to access public recovery funds. You have to prove up um, often land ownership, which you can do in a variety of ways now. FEMA passed something in 2022 to provide for different ways that you can prove up your residency. Um, but still, title status is, is required in most instances 
to access uh, disaster recovery funding. But in East Texas, I saw a way that people were able to leverage um, uh, narratives in ways that supported their own planning and preservation aims. So the deep East, East Texas area, those two shaded counties, Jasper and Newton County, were the focus areas of uh, my dissertation scholarship research was started in 2014. Uh, we know this more commonly as an area associated with the Jamesburg dragging death in, in Jasper County, but what many people don't realize is that the road on which his body was dragged was actually Huff Creek Road, which was not just a road, but actually was a freedom colony. So there's the need for the uh, obvious uh, visibility and need to, to tell the story and the power of the story uh, of the hate crime story, but actually uh, sublimated in the telling of the story is uh, the attempted persistence of African-American independence and self-sufficiency in the form of cemetery and this chapel, which was what's a Rosenwald school. I saw storytelling as a form of preservation practice in a particular settlement nearby in Newton County called Shankleville. And they were leveraging their origin story to draw people back to the community, whether they live there full time or not, in order to raise money for various needs, whether it be maintaining uh, structures, stewarding the cemetery there, you see at the annual homecoming celebration, these are individuals behind the table from six neighboring settlements, and they have a mutual aid or cooperative movement during these homecoming seasons where they attend each other's events and raise money to sustain cemeteries, which is an often you know, difficult thing to do, especially when you don't have these modern perpetual care insurance systems. Uh, so we also see individuals from all over the state who come back to the settlement. So this is a settlement that's two hours from Dallas. It's at least uh, 45 minutes to an hour from Beaumont. It's uh, three and a half hours from Houston, Texas. But all of these individuals demonstrate an extreme commitment to this place as place, even though they may have never lived there full time. And I was interested in what was so powerful, why? And the practice of preservation often hand uh, it happened in oral traditions and um, in kin keeping, the practice of primarily but not exclusively of women of maintaining family Bibles and written accounts um, of elders, uh, births, deaths, and uh, momentous foundational stories of the place. And their foundational story is about um, two enslaved Africans in Mississippi, one of which he was sold to a master in Texas. And uh, the husband who was still in Mississippi swam, swam several great rivers to reunite with uh, his love in Shankleville. And that was Jim and Winnie Shankle, the namesake of the community. And they are said to have gathered at a stream. So here on this in the bottom corner where you see Harold Odom, he is at that point, at that point where they are alleged to have uh, reunited. Has there been an archaeological dig there to explore this? Yes. Have there been tools dated and tools and elements dated back to that period of 1840 to 1850? Yes. Um, but the idea is not whether or not to prove the story. Whether or not you prove the story, 
doesn't shape why these individuals return. They return without your archaeological dig, without your so-called proof, um, coming as far away as Australia, New York City, Virginia, to reunite in this place. So what I found in Shankleville was that the foundational stories held these memories and values that fostered attachment to place, and that was fostered through these celebrations and social networks that then encouraged participation, uh, planning, preservation, community building that then catalyzed real planning outcomes, reinvestment with money and time in preserving buildings and the cemetery, uh, recognition, uh, protection, they are on the National Register of Historic Places, one of their homesteads is, and cultural sustainability, and all of that feeds back into the perpetuation of the story. And I wanted to know, is it all about Shankleville, or are there other communities that leverage their stories, and how do they leverage their foundational story? So I began to work in those two counties I showed you before during the rest of my time, back and forth between Austin and Deep East Texas, a five-hour drive, to sometimes spending extended visits, walking towards with individuals, co-planning, um, you know, events where we could gather more individuals from other settlements to share their stories and experiences and planning and preservation practices. So all of these were employed, these methodologies, to document stories, practices, meaning, buildings, site names, settlement names. So I found like in this settlement in Jasper, uh, Dixie community, where their collective memory catalyzed their return um, to this space to, uh, which was their school gym, a segregation era school gym that now is a space where they're teaching life skills um, to students in the area. So when I started the, the project, my goal was not to map anything. I was looking at story. And in the process, I thought, well, why don't I just go ahead and map all the places that I've been to or that people have told me about to which I could ascribe the latitude and the longitude because I've never been there and I had my phone and I was able to tag, geotag, um, or I had a structure that I could go into Google Maps and locate and affix a point. The original listing in the back of the book, Freedom Colonies had 14 settlements and said in this two county area, there are 14. But when I did my work, I found those 14, actually found that one of those was misnamed. And I found uh, with the aid of individuals, 13 or 14 settlements um, and places that they refer to as black pockets that were also settlements. So that's several more. So either my map is wrong or that other map is wrong, right? And someone might say, well, your map is wrong. This is the map. <laughs> and so there's a, a use of a, a, a counter a counter narratives that facilitated counter mapping stories of the places and demonstration or explanation of significance then enabled a visibility and a mapping of the places in the stories. So the Texas Freedom Colony descendants, that is the people that I was gathering stories from, I also want to know what would be an agenda moving forward? I've engaged with you, I've talked to you, you made your map. Um, what are the kind of things that you prioritize? And, and the 50 um, people that I would talk to over time, 
Um, these were the themes that surfaced, a centralized location for information and communication. They want to work with institutions of higher learning. They want to develop a learning community for themselves. They wanted to get practical technical assistance, preserve heritage and memorabilia associated with the remaining structures. They want an economically sustainable organization and they wanted um, a public policy and legislative agenda. I was like, I can't do all that. I just graduated. <laughs> Sorry, can't. Um, but it did get me to thinking about um, a, an approach to mapping and a way to centralize all different forms of communication and information that helps define a place existed and that's still historically significant. And that's what led to the development of the Texas Freedom Colleagues Project. It was my doctoral study. And so since 2014, I've been focused on connecting and collecting stories to counter map and then securing that data in a publicly accessible place and using that data then to co-create research that ideally will generate solutions or training other researchers to delve deeper into the myriad problems and issues that face these communities. One thing to understand is there are 254 counties, 24 million people in Texas. So one approach that one might say is to spend the rest of your life mapping them by yourself, but one that's not sustainable. And two, um, it, the, the participatory principle in this is what makes it sustainable and actually um, principally uh, a bottom up grassroots exercise that reflects the needs and wants of the community. So what we do is crowdsource the gaps in knowledge. We didn't start with a blank map. We started with those 34 that I mapped um, and out of the 500 or so in the back of the book, Freedom Colonies, uh, we found an automatic 300 57 that we could identify on a map um, that we could identify as having had majority black census and that we had a physical um, something in the landscape associated with the name. So whether it was a lake or whether it was a, a church or a school, we also facilitate connection and co-creation. That is mentoring, educating, growing leaders, volunteer capacity and co-creating and co-curating. Uh, it's so this is an example of one of the uh, in public events in which this happens. This was sponsored by the Whiting Foundation when I was a fellow um, at the State Museum of Texas, where we partnered with a number of local groups on how to amass data, uh, how uh, to record. And also for those individuals past the time that my little team of students came in and intervened, how would they continue to work with each other? to uh, list things on the National Register or get markers um, or conduct oral history. So we had an oral history training with 75 people at once. Um, and that training uh, led to uh, one individual then meeting up with the Department of Transportation and beginning a long fight um, to protect um, Alexander Farm. Uh, and so we actually try to have narration and connection as catalysts past the time that we're in the midst of trying to gather story and gather information. So this is the actual atlas, which is the home of the data. It's, it's the tail end of the process for the public. Uh, this is the survey. So if you're wondering where does the data come in, how do you collect it? Uh, the tabs that say tell your story and take the Black Settlement Study Survey are the, the surveys in which you can place the data in which there's a map where you can place a point. 
we also hold stories. So here's an example of one of the stories that you'll see. Um, some of the stories are from the Texas State Historical Association because we were able to cross-reference and document stories there, and some actually come from individuals. Uh, this is Green Chapel uh, by Cynthia Matlock, her entry. And I'm not going to read it. All I want to point out is the dates, uh, the family names, the location of Frisbee Chapel, the existence of, of people still worshiping there. So we can see in 250 words or less, a volume of information about location, origin time, uh, origin, uh, date of origin, very valuable place-based data. This is our most recent image on the dashboard tab that tells you that we've located and verified 468. Um, we have 360 pieces of data under review, and we have 83 where we have some information, but we need more research to validate it, and 83 for which we only have names and don't have the information. It may be in that 360, which we're slowly combing through. And then I'll end with the way that we need to center narrative in planning education and research. So mentoring is a big piece of what I do. Um, mentoring community-engaged researchers and project-based learning is important to me. In the class I teach more than monuments, preservation and social justice, where I teach students to not only ID Freedom Colony landscape features, it's also a service class in which we engage in cemetery mapping and documentation for communities and make accessible to the people that we work with. This class, out of all of the field work that they did, develop a Burleson Black Settlements uh, website, which those communities, communities can do to make themselves more of a, a cohesive group that can represent themselves to funders um, to solicit support. And also uh, my research team um, developed uh, a way to uh, continue to do our work uh, during the pandemic. Um, we had a lot of things happen, right? We had BLM protests, George Floyd murder. We also had campus climate issues at Texas A&M around the existence of a Confederate statue. And so this all meant a tremendous disruption to an important holiday, Juneteenth in 2020. This is in advance of it becoming a national holiday. So we thought about what's the core problem? Well, Juneteenth is a peak engagement period and people cannot engage. Social distancing is required. So how do we adapt? And what is preservation supposed to look like during a crisis? That's what we, those were our research questions and they were applied. We needed to figure this out. And so what we did is develop talk shows um, with descendants and they featured different topics, whether it was COVID and navigating black funerals. Um, these were throughout the entire uh, first year of the pandemic. And in June, uh, we had a Juneteenth coffee talk. And the transcripts from those then, um, we coded to look at themes around kinship, community, creating community space to see what the community-based adapt adaptions were. We learned a lot, which is in a fourth uh, article in public culture about organizing and engaged digital research called Digital Juneteenth. Scholars must utilize participatory and transdisciplinary research approaches to help descendants translate and illustrate displacement to policymakers. But how do we actually show erasure in, in creative ways when things are erased? Freedom colonies provide a foundation for just preservation practice in Black and other underrepresented communities. Freedom colonies are but a case study for a broader intervention we need in terms of how we utilize and organize data. And practitioners must seek intersectional spaces, that's the gaps, 
where oral traditions can be spatialized to make these places visible. And we can teach and mentor, schol mentor scholars to translate and foreground Black oral tradition, memory, knowledge, production, and sublimated practices as central to a just preservation practice. This is an example of that intersectionality where we're trying to increase visibility. Here we see a, a layer of, of uh, upcoming Texas Department of Transportation projects, and we have an accompanying book so that if you're in one of these areas, let's say you're not living there, but you could see your settlement and whether or not a project is coming, and then we have a guide for what it is you can do to make yourself part of that engagement process. So we've made a lot of achievements. We've located in verified places. We've made the map. Um, we are at a Texas Water Trends Report, which will be forthcoming about water quality and access and issues and freedom colonies. Um, we need to find more policy spaces where oral traditions can be spatialized. That's that's the big thing here. Um, and here are sort of the framework for just preservation as I see it. Intersectionality, that is seeing those overlapping areas in which there are not appropriate documentation, um, access, uh, and visibility. Um, addressing the inherent anti-Blackness in, in much of our historic preservation um, policy and practice, centering community agency, representativeness, cultural humility, not competency, you can't be competent in a person in my opinion, and reciprocity, a principle of reciprocity. And these are the two ways that you can um, interact with my projects. You can always go to the contact page on my website, but the Texas Freedom Colonies Project website is here, Texas the Texas Freedom College Project.com and the 2022 National Endowment for Humanities Summer Institute for Higher Education faculty uh, at Dunbar Notes, which was a summer program that I was the co-director of, which was about elevating and teaching Black and Indigenous histories of the nation's capital. So elevating narratives and, and new foundational stories of place rooted in Black and Indigenous histories and narratives. Thank you. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Now, as always, it's time for Campus Connections, a part of the podcast where we connect today's featured content to the work of others at UMBC. Today, as promised, our production assistant Alex is back with yet another thoughtful Campus Connection. Alex, would you be so kind as to reveal today's connection? Hey, Dr. Anson. After listening to this episode, I was really drawn to the idea of cultural preservation versus erasure, especially in the context of many generations of African Americans. For this installment of Campus Connections, I'm going to be talking about an article titled A Monument to Black Resistance and Strength. This article was written in part by UMBC's own George Derrick Musgrove, Associate Professor of UMBC's History Department. The article talks about the Emancipation Memorial right here in DC. Many people have mixed feelings about this memorial. While it does depict the emancipation, it does so in a way that makes people very uncomfortable. A slave kneeling in front of Abraham Lincoln. Thanks to proper preservation, we figured out that the kneeling component of the memorial was actually a choice made by abolitionists and was opposed by many of the contributors. While other aspects, like the kneeling man being made in the image of Archer Alexander, a man who escaped slavery and found refuge with a Union general, who was shortly after removed from command by none other than Lincoln himself. 
This memorial shows the idea that both abolitionists and African Americans saw throughout its construction, and thanks to proper cultural preservation, we understand that clearly. That's all for this week's Campus Connection. Back to you, Dr. Anson. Thanks again, Alex, for your intrepid reporting. And thanks to you for tuning in today to hear about these impactful research projects. And as always, keep questioning. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Mallinson, our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno, and our production intern is Alex Andrews. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Dewan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent CS3 events. Until next time, keep questioning.